Welcome to Foresight. I'm Greg Williams. We're currently doing a special series in which we spend time with a number of the speakers who we were fortunate to have grace our stage at the Wired Impact Sustainability event in London last November. In today's episode, I speak with Insia Jaffaji, the co-founder of packaging startup Shellworks, which is working to develop sustainable packaging materials. It's estimated that UK households throw away a staggering 100 billion pieces of plastic packaging a year. That's around 66 items per household per week. And the vast majority of this material is produced using materials derived from fossil fuels. Plastic is basically carbon in polymer form. And the way that plastic's produced is just part of the challenge. We're increasingly aware of the menace of microplastics that are found in every part of our world, from the depths of oceans to the summits of mountains. Shellworks, a UK biotech startup, is trying to disrupt this by replacing plastic with materials based in nature. Their first material, Vivoma, is made from using microbes and can degrade in any natural environment. In this episode, Insi discusses how her interdisciplinary team is innovating in material science in order to be able to scale products that after use will be consumed by microbes that are abundant in soil and marine environments. Enjoy the conversation. Insia, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Greg. So let's begin with some context. Let's talk about the problem that you're trying to solve. Can you give us a sense of how big plastic pollution is as a challenge, as a problem? Generally, I guess plastic pollution is one of, it's just one of the biggest problems. And it's probably the biggest problem that people know and see in their everyday life. So we always ask the question, look around the room, and you probably see almost everything that you see or touch or feel, there'll be some element of plastic used in it. And unfortunately, 300 million tons of this ends up as plastic waste. So it's unfortunately just the way the material has been used is the scale of the problem in itself. So that's 300 million tonnes globally, and that's just the bits we can count, presumably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Sometimes they say that there's probably more total plastic waste than any other like material in the world. Okay, that's a pretty grim statistic. Is there... Are there grades within this? Is there a spectrum of this? Is some plastic worse than other plastics? So I think the challenge with it in itself is the fact that there are so many different types of plastic. To be honest, it came from a really genuine place where we wanted to try and preserve our resources. So that's how we started developing many different types of plastics. Some plastics are really good at certain types of barriers. For example, we want to preserve our food for longer. And I think it just kind of escalated from there is that then we had this toolkit we could continue to keep making with. But because we have so many different types, it's really difficult to now say, oh, all of it can be recycled in the same way. And I think that the multiple number of it is inherently the biggest challenge. So it's, it's, it's the volume. There's not a huge difference between, I don't know, a plastic supermarket bag and the case of a smartphone. Well, I guess when you put it like that, there is a difference. And I think, for example, PET is the most widely recycled plastic. And that inherently makes it one of the better plastics. And on the flip side, things where you use multiple different layers of different types of plastic, 
inherently mean that it can't be recycled, which starts to cause more waste and pollution. And so those are the harder types of plastic to replace. So other than the the volume, why is plastic so damaging to you know the, the environment? Why is it a big problem we need to solve in order to get to, to net zero? Oh, this, this could be tackled from multiple different angles. One lens that we look at it from sometimes is that it doesn't have a strong waste infrastructure globally that has been able to work, like the ways that we see with glass or aluminum or, in fact, even natural materials. And it's because it doesn't have a good waste infrastructure that means then it escapes the waste and starts to pollute, ultimately. As a result of that, the other implications that we've now started to realize with plastic is that even if it breaks down, it starts to create microplastics, and it's a pretty early stage of research, this field, but it started to affect not only us from a waste perspective, but also from a human health and biodiversity, which are now having even further reaching consequences. And it does feel like we're starting to address it a little bit too late. So we're playing a lot of catch up versus in other industries, perhaps we've had a little bit more proactive nature to start to get to a further developed answer by now. So presumably with microplastics, we can stop producing plastic, but the microplastic is still going to be out there. It's, we've, we've effectively kind of released it into the wild. Is there anything that can be done about that or it just degrade over hundreds of years? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for microplastics right now. There are, you know, a lot of solutions being worked on for perhaps plastics that haven't been fully degraded yet you know, enzymes that break down traditional plastics or petroleum-based plastics now that then could digest those materials. Those are definitely solutions on the rise. And there's been a lot of really exciting research coming out. And now that research is actually starting to, you know, you see it getting commercialized, which is really promising. But for microplastics, unfortunately, we really haven't seen anything yet other than looking at the flip side of how do we create new materials that don't start to cause those problems and how can we start to minimize the problem that way through new production. But just a final question on where we are now. You talked about there being no strong waste infrastructure, the fact that the majority of plastics are petroleum-based. Is there such a thing as a good plastic, one that we can use within the circular economy? Or do you think this is effectively kind of like a a zero-sum situation? We just have to figure out other materials that we can use for modern purposes. There is definitely good plastic. And that's why we always say plastic is an amazing material, but it's been used for the wrong application sometimes. So good plastic is, we need a lot of things that last a really long time. And for that, we should definitely be using plastic because it's one of the most robust materials in the world. Good plastic could also be the ones that do fit within those waste streams. So the ones that are highest recycled, um, for example, your water bottle. Those are one of the ones that are really well picked up from recycling streams. But it's the rest of them, the problematic ones, you know, small items that fall through sometimes these recycling grades. It's the monomaterial solutions that don't exist for things that require like three or four layers. Those are the ones that really we don't see a lot of solutions on the horizon. And they're also inherently the hardest problems to solve because even plastic or petroleum hasn't been able to solve them using petroleum resources. So, and I think this is the trouble with plastics. 
is that traditionally there also has been a lot of greenwashing in the space of materials because it's so complex and you can look at it from so many different angles. And for a consumer, it's a lot of onus to put on them being like, hey, there are these seven different codes. You need to wash it in certain states before you throw it away. It's very confusing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And clearly recycling is a help, but it's certainly not a solution. You're obviously trying to sort of create sort of like novel new materials that include base polymers, dyes, inks, seals. Can you just talk us through what you've been developing and and the process that you've gone through in order to develop that? Yeah, so at Childworks, we've been looking at developing materials that will break down in any natural environment. And the reason for this is to combat the struggle that we have with waste infrastructure globally um, in able to handle complex materials. And there are a few different types of ways to tackle it, but our solution is looking at nature. So there are a number of different microorganisms that exist in our soil and marine environments that have the ability to grow a plastic-like material. And the benefit of that is that then when you throw it away, those same microorganisms in these soil and marine environments can recognize it and degrade it if it escapes the systems. But the challenge for a company like ours is because it's a new material, we also want to make sure that it fits into waste infrastructure and whether that be recycling, whether that be organic recycling. So kind of trying to create a solution that fits everything is kind of the challenge that we're up for today. And it's one that, you know, you touched on it a little bit. It's why we do look at not just the polymer, but the pigments, the inks, the seals, so that every little detail can be addressed. So just talk us through the process. Like if you're trying to create something that is, you know, a novel material, where do you start the the scientific endeavour, I guess? So for us, at least, we started in our master's and we came across early research around this area. And then, to be honest, we are one of the few companies where if you look at the breadth of how we built it, we have some microbiologists on our team, we have some polymer chemists, we have some mechanical engineers... We also have operations. We also have marketing. And it is, in a way, a reflection of how complex we think the problem is, is that you do need to tackle it from so many different angles. So perhaps to tackle overpackaging, we've got to look at the design of the packaging itself. To look at the material and its specifications, you need to look at a polymer scientist and make sure that the barrier properties are right for the ingredients you're putting in. In order to make sure you go after the right brands, you've got to have marketing and make sure that the product looks beautiful in addition to performance. So I would say even in the early stages for a solution in the material space, you have to have multiple different stakeholders really weighing in, even in the early stage research, so that you can develop a material that will be applied to industry. Because in the past, what we've seen is a lot of research, but very little of it truly commercialized at scale. And presumably this is something that most sort of like FMCG companies and various other supermarkets, they're saying to you, we want a solution. We want to be able to sort of, this helps them as much as anything else on their sustainability journey. Yes, I think the timing is right and there's definitely interest, but the complexity is still there. So for example, the costs at which FMCG companies operate and run through their materials is 
you really have to be producing parts at 100 million, 500 million. Otherwise, you kind of end up just doing a pilot and building towards that scale, which takes a really long time. So that's like one complication, for example. The second is, I would say there is just a lot of confusion in this space. So should we be investing in recycling further or should we be investing in new materials? Some new materials haven't worked out. So how do you distinguish between the ones that have worked versus haven't? There's a lot of greenwashing in the space where people say this is the kind of key material and then when you dig into it isn't. So I think from that perspective, even for an FMCG company who wants to switch, it is complicated territory because it's new. There isn't like a process. It's not like, hey, get these documents in place and you're good to go because no one even knows what the documents are. Like recently we were chatting to a customer and, you know, sometimes they ask us questions like, oh, what happens when you burn this material? And I was thinking in my head, I was like, when was the last time you asked someone what happens when you burn glass? Yeah. Probably never. But it's so new that people don't even know yet what are all the sets of questions that you need to answer. And it varies for every single plastic application. So if it's fresh food versus dry food versus cosmetics versus cleaning products, it's a massive landscape and plastic has been used for decades. People haven't had to think about it. And and you mentioned greenwashing, which obviously is something that we've kind of been discussing quite a lot throughout this series. Where's that occurring in the packaging space? You mentioned that, you know, you dig into things and actually the material that people say that they're mainly basing their packaging on is not what the major part of it is. Where else might we see this in the, um, the value chain? So, and this is the thing, I think it never comes from an intentional space. Like I I think greenwashing is always, there is one step forward, but then it's sold as it's hundred steps forward. And I think that's the misconception that then breaks trust with the consumer and then puts us in a cycle. And we do a lot of work on this. We have a glossary of terms, even every time someone new joins the company, because a biopolymer is different to a biodegradable polymer, which is different to a compostable polymer. And even within compostable, there's industrial composting and home composting. I mean, even as I rattle this off, this seems like an excessive amount of terms that we've created to define what good is. So, for example, a biopolymer comes from a biosource, but it might not biodegrade. And biodegradation doesn't mean that something actually degrades in a normal environment. It just means that it could degrade in a perhaps high heat, high humidity And so this is confusing, I mean, for a consumer, because if you assume biodegradable, you assume that that material, you could plant it in your ground, it would eventually disappear, but that's not always the case. So there have been a lot of promises or claims been made without really the transparency behind it, without kind of leaving out certain details. So it seems really exciting. And then you lose trust with consumers because it doesn't do what they expect it to do. Yeah, and I think that that trust piece is really important. We were talking about recycling earlier on, and there is definitely a trust piece in that, that you know, many people just don't think that it's an effective way of creating a circular economy. But I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned this idea of naming the, the nomenclature, if you like, of these materials. Do you think that, that really there's an argument to say that we need to sort of have a more robust, descriptive, regulated, sort of certified space in order to be able to make progress in this world? I mean, 
Definitely, but I would also add accessible certification because the trouble with currently the landscape of certification and regulation is that it is very inaccessible. So the costs around it are so high that if you were a new and emerging company, it's really challenging for you to get those certifications in place. For example, we plant all of our materials in the ground. And that's a very visual way to show customers, hey, this is something that's degrading. But if we were to go and get a piece of certification, we would actually have to get that same certification across every single product we shipped. So if it was a different color, if it had a different ink on it, if the different form factor, and each certification is at least 15 to 20,000 pounds, at which point, basically, we might as well use all of our funding on certifying our products. And I think that's where looking at regulation and certification as something that could become very accessible would be amazing because then it starts to shift the conversation from who also can make that impact. Because I think, unfortunately, also we're limited to who can make certain impacts like this because it's a CapEx heavy, it's a research heavy, high cost in certification. It's a small group of people who will try to do this from a new startup perspective. We're going to take a short break now, but we'll be back with INSEA shortly. So looking at things from a startup perspective, startups want to create IP and you, you created a new um, product offering, something called Vivoma, Vivoma? Vivoma, yeah. Vivoma, there you go. <laughs> um, why are you particularly excited about this particular product? Well, one, it's something that we've been working on for quite some time from so many different angles. And we're excited to see it in the market because it is a pretty remarkable solution. So it is something that we've strived to hit all of those tick boxes. So, for example, right now it's built to degrade in any natural environment. So if it escapes a waste stream, it truly will be all right. But also it is something that it's extremely stable in its use, which traditionally sustainable materials haven't been able to do because if you use uh, certain ingredients or if you have a high water content, the material typically degrades using that pathway. So, you know, it is something that could be reusable. It could be recyclable. It could be compostable. And uh, it's safe if it escapes a waste stream. So... It's still early days and this is our challenge in kind of scaling it up and now starting to meet those really low commodity costs that you need in a plastics industry to be able to make that impact. But from a technical perspective, this material could fit in in any waste stream. So just to be clear, the challenge you're facing there really is one of costs in order to be able to produce it at scale. Is that correct? Yeah, so essentially scale it to the level where you can start to compete with really very cheap plastics. Right, so, you know, this is the green premium that we talk about in so many kind of like other materials-based offerings we're seeing, whether this is, you know, green concrete or whatever it might be. So it might be a good moment then to sort of segue in talking a little bit about the barriers you face to wide-scale adoption. Is this fundamentally about kind of building trust with manufacturers, with retailers, Or is it about scale and cost fundamentally? Um, Once you've got scale and cost, then you can start working with third parties. So a lot of it is trust, to be honest. So, and and this is, it comes from a very valid place where 
a lot of the packaging leaders of this world have tried so many materials and they have been disappointed for whichever reason. Maybe it's the material property, maybe it has been an element of greenwashing. So there's a huge amount of risk in adopting a new material. And that's what we see now, I think, in our generation of material creators, whether it's Shellworks or whether it's any other startup out there, there's a lot of mistrust around new materials. And that's something we're trying to break because they definitely have failed before, but we're definitely working on a better and improved generation of materials. The other, in terms of cost and scale, it's always going to be a chicken and egg situation. It's going to cost more until we can get to those millions of volumes. And that's when you really see cost breaks coming in. But until then, there is going to be a need to pay a slight premium. And I, and I think our vision at Shellworks is we've never wanted sustainability to be inaccessible. Mm. Like our vision has been, we wanted to make it accessible. While we know that there is a market and we're being strategic in how we get to that, you know, our go-to-market strategy, we're also highly driven by impact. So thinking about the marketplace, you want to make an impact. Obviously, you can make an impact. There's um, an enormous addressable global market. I mean, it's, I, I can't even imagine what the value of the marketplace is. It's got to be probably in the hundreds of billions of US. So there are obviously some enormous players in this area. There also are SMCG companies that presumably are thinking about this. What's happening more broadly beyond Shellworks in terms of innovating in this space that you're, you're seeing? So there's kind of primarily three different categories and three different ways of looking at it. So there's a whole new category of new materials, whether it's from microorganisms, whether it's from seaweed, whether it's from mushroom, spider silk. There's a huge category of new materials that are being created looking at the entire life cycle. So things that you know, are from renewable resources, degrading natural environments. And once they all become big enough, they would also be able to be recycled. So there is a huge category of new materials. The second is, it's also become a very big mindset shift. So things like refill, reuse, looking at over-packaging, reducing the amount of packaging. Traditionally, there has been a lot of hesitation around that, but now you see more brands winning awards for less packaging consumers starting to realize that a certain product is actually the same value as the other. Just because the packaging is lighter doesn't mean that it's not as good. So there is definitely a shift there. And then the third is those waste infrastructures. So it is an extremely difficult task for them, but there's a lot of innovation happening that helps sort better to help take away a little bit of that onus from the consumer and put in new systems and technology to be able to make those function better, as well as a bit more of a willingness to work with new materials as well. And presumably, you know, many of the FMCG or whatever companies they are, are, you know, they have huge R&D departments. Is it possible an organisation with much larger resources than you could just steal a march on this? I mean, how, how do you think about that? What keeps you up at night? So to be honest, I've never been... I've never been afraid of larger organizations. And of course, they're always looking at different things and they've looked at things in the past. But ultimately, it always comes down to what is someone's key focus. And a lot of these companies' key focus is not packaging. It's the ingredient, it's the product itself, and then the packaging is a part of their solution. But I do think there is something to say that it's probably easier to acquire 
a startup where this is their entire focus than necessarily develop. It's probably cheaper too than to kind of pour the resources in a large organization to develop this. And that's the sense that I get is they're open to it, but they haven't necessarily been able to very easily or quickly find a solution. I don't know. We have a little bit of a luxury where we can fail easier outside of that environment because they have such high requirements but we might be like oh we can't hit those requirements for that product but maybe we could do it for a different application which is lower requirements and be a bit more nimble until we get to that say stage so a little bit is mindset i think in terms of it's easier for us to pivot than it would be for them yeah, I guess you're smaller and more nimble and you can make decisions much more quickly. Um, you mentioned earlier that you wanted you know, your solutions to be accessible, that sustainability should be accessible to everyone. Presumably, people who are buying goods in developed countries will have access to your products and to other sort of sustainable packaging products you know, in the next few years. Like, how do we ensure that this doesn't just become something that sort of the elites, if you like, are having access to? How do we how do we ensure that there really is widespread sort of use of, the, of this kind of packaging? How do we reach, I guess, the developing world would be the question. I think the main way, and it's something that we've always tried to do here as well, is to go after that customer that serves a mass audience. And we're seeing more and more appetite for that because they really want to see the scale as well as to be honest, there are some really, you know, we we look at the targets that brands are setting for themselves. They are extremely ambitious and they won't be able to hit those. And, and actually those targets are becoming more global is ultimately the thing. So if they want to be able to hit those targets on a global level, they will have to make the transition. And we've seen it happen in other industries previously, right? So we've seen it even in the food industry, an industry which is so commodity heavy and so low cost and they were able to kind of take the hit and grow with more sustainable options and you see those sustainable options proliferating globally now so there is a route it's just what is the pressure point and when when will companies really be forced to make that change and how long will they take the hit for yeah that's interesting because i guess most large organizations are having to do their audit. And where does packaging sit in an audit? Is it scope three? Where does it sit in, in terms of how organizations are going to be thinking about it? I think ultimately it is truly a scope three. And yeah. it is one of the hardest ones because it requires a very physical, tangible change. And we've seen companies tackle it from a scope one and scope two perspective to start off with, whether it's you know looking at the supply chain of it or the transportation of it. And But at the end of the day, it is a it's a nitty gritty one. And while I do think it'll be one of the last ones to be addressed, it, it will get addressed. And just looking forward, just thinking about, you know, how there really will be this transition away from fossil fuel based packaging, or oil based packaging, I should say, what do you think the possibilities are in terms of material science being the driver of this? So innovation being the driver of this? Or is this going to need top-down government intervention, so effectively like regulation. So we've seen plastic bags banned in many countries from South Africa to some states in the United States. How do you think about this kind of mix of nudges, if you like, that are going to be necessary? I think it is going to happen in parallel, and it will have to happen in parallel because we are seeing that the further 
material developments are, the further regulation comes as well. So I do see them happening in a similar time frame, but regulation, especially in Europe, is moving quite rapidly and it is pushing against, I wouldn't say plastics, but plastic waste. So ultimately, I mean, uh, we, we do a lot of research on other industries and where we've seen this change come from. And it has come from regulation because the innovation will speed up if there is the right resources given to it. It is out there, like research and science. I don't know, that's always been my belief is that if you look at what scientists are developing in their labs, they have some really cutting edge solutions. But you've got to have the financing or just people to take that leap of faith to commercialize it because it's... These solutions are there, they're just nascent and they don't have as much attention as they probably should have. Let's talk about your journey as an entrepreneur. I'm interested in really understanding why you chose this problem, but also that entrepreneurial journey. What have been the most significant challenges? What have been the most rewarding moments? It wasn't an obvious jump at it, to be honest. It wasn't something that had been burning in me for a long time. But I studied mechanical engineering and I worked at Apple for a number of years. And there was something that got to me about how they'd managed to get the smartest people in the room to tackle complex hardware challenges. But I always wondered, what if you got those same people in the room and got them to work on something that can have a real, tangible, physical impact? So I think that was always brewing in my head. And then I met my co-founder, Mir, when I came to London, and he just loved natural materials. Like, everyone in the university knew who he was because he was experimenting with, like, a new type of material any day. And honestly, that's how it started, was I was so inspired by his love for new materials, and it gave me the perfect opportunity to be able to create that environment where you can have the smartest people working on something that's going to have a very tangible, scalable impact. And your significant, the most significant challenges and most rewarding developments. Let's have a little bit of darkness and light. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Shellworks is, it's a funny one. We've had some real ups and downs. Like, I feel like they always say a startup is a bunch of fires and we, you know, we had a real fire. Like nothing's ever been a metaphor for us. Um, whether it's been... And I think, you know, that grittiness and resilience is a huge part of who we are. In the early days, we didn't have any funding. So the way we made our parts was we would go to scrapyards, we would get aluminum, we would genuinely melt it down, and that's how we made our molds. But there was, I don't know, just like a real fire, a desire to solve this problem that drove us. And it's, it is such a difficult problem. So maybe we are just really attracted to really challenging problems, but it just kept us going. And We've had no's, but we've also had a lot of yeses. So within the no's, there's always been someone who's really cheerleaded us, who got it, who is just like, this is the next best thing. Like, please continue to work on it. So, you know, there were many days when me and my co-founder would be really tired and we would go to Roti King in Houston and we would just sit there and we would be like, oh my God, is it ever going to work out? And then the next day, we would just wake up and be super fresh and we would have so many new ideas on how to solve what seemed like the most daunting thing in the world the next morning. So and I do think it is that 
multidisciplinary approach that also kept us going because we do have designers, we have scientists, we have engineers, and sometimes a problem is really challenging to solve using science, but it's quite easy to solve using engineering or it's quite easy to solve using design. And, and genuinely, it never felt like we were stuck. Well, I guess the world always looks better from the perspective of Roti King. So um, <laughs> that, that's a good entrepreneurial lesson for, for anyone listening. Get down to Roti King and, and address your challenges there. You'll always feel better afterwards. Um, where do you hope to be in your research, also your productization in, I don't know, the next five to 10 years? What, what do you think is the best case scenario for this, if we're really thinking about innovative solutions in, in the space that you're working in? We've always had the ambition of being the Gore-Tex, but of packaging. We, we've developed something that ultimately our USP is that it's sustainable, it's safe, and it's just something to be proud of. And I think that's where we would like to be in the next five years, is that it's a piece of packaging that people are really proud of using. And it's just fundamentally the best packaging. It's not just that it's sustainable, it's performant, it's cost-competitive and sustainable. Well, Insia, we really do look forward to following your journey over the coming years and please do keep us updated and um, thank you so much for joining us on Foresight today. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Um, It really does help us to build the Wired community. Thank you so much. Wired Foresight is a Condé Nast Entertainment production. Jessica Taylor is our managing producer. Emily Elias is our producer. Annalise Begent is our production assistant. Jake Loomis is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Hannah Brewer, Jordan Bell, Peyton Hayes and Nico Steele. I'm your host, Greg Williams, and we'll be back next week in conversation with investor Evelina Alago. We'll be talking climate finance. Thank you so much for joining us.